Now, this morning, uh, Carrie is going to do our scripture reading today. Before she does, as she's pulling it up, this is your mic, sorry. Um, We have a membership class on January the 22nd, and so if you're interested in learning more about membership here, at 4 o'clock next Sunday, uh, we'll meet in this room at 4 o'clock to talk about what our beliefs are and what our members covenant to do. And so if you want to follow along, she's going to be reading from Genesis chapter 15, starting in verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your great shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward the heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to them, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I, that, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, and a ram three years old, and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. When the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in the land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete." When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On the day the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites and the Kenizzites and the Kadamites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, and the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Genesis 15, 1-21. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you so much, Carrie. Let's just pray once again that God would speak to us through his word. Father, I pray that you would speak to us today. Lord, there were so many good truths in what we just sang. That you're here to be beheld, Lord. That we came here to see you, to taste of your goodness. And Lord, our invitation to anyone who would join into this congregation today was that we would magnify the Lord together, that we would taste and see your goodness. And so today, as we look at this passage, I do pray that you would reveal not only your goodness, but also how we might walk in faith, anchored to your promises. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. A couple uh, 
last week we started this sermon series in the book of Genesis again. Last year we went through Genesis 1 through 11. This year we picked up in Genesis chapter 12. So now we're picking back up in Genesis chapter 15, looking at the patriarchs or the fathers of our faith, the, the first stories of people setting out following God and his word. And I want, I want to just acknowledge that uh, walking with Jesus definitely holds some answers for us, right? Like if you start to follow Jesus, there's at least some things that you're like, hey, we have answers. But a lot of times there's just as many questions when you set out walking with Christ um, as there are answers. For those that are trusting in him, we have the answer of how will our guilt be taken care of? How is our shame dealt with? How has he reconciled us to God through Jesus Christ? But there's also questions of how is all of this going to play out? And in this story, there's this sequence of events where Abraham hears a word from God. He questions, how is it going to work out? God reassures him, and then he walks forward in faith, which I have seen in my own life and in the patterns of other people that are walking with Christ, this same pattern, where God gives us his word. We say, okay, but yeah, but how? And then he says, I'm giving you my word again, and then we walk forward in faith. Many of you come into this, questions with very, into this room with very specific questions, maybe about why you're suffering or how God would explain the purpose of it, or what's going to come of your kids. I know that I have a list of questions. If God said, you can ask me anything, I have at least three or four things that I would say, I would really like to have clarity about how you're going to work these things out. So as you come into this space, I want you just to take a moment and remember the questions that you come into this room with. Many of you probably know exactly the question that you would ask God if he could give you the answer right now. Believers do have answers, but we also have questions about how it will unfold. There's a valid degree of skepticism with any person who can say, I know exactly how the unknown is going to unfold. The agnostic conviction that there's no way of knowing the truth, that there's no confidence, we do not hold to that. We hold central to our faith. Not what man can explain to us about God, but what God has given us about himself and his world through his word. One of our primary convictions in this church is that God's word is sufficient. That means that it is enough for us to walk out in faith. So in all of our questions, we continue to walk forward saying, Lord, how would you have me to walk in obedience? And here in this scene in the life of Abraham, the father of faith, we see what faith looks like. Even faith that would be counted to him as righteous looked like this, that pattern that I just named. It's going to be on the screen. God gives him a promise. Abram asks some questions about it. God gives him some assurance, and then Abram walks in faith. And then he does it again. And so we're going to see that two times throughout this passage. First, God gives this promise. And the bottom line of, of this whole passage, and my hope, is that we would see and experience this anew today, that God's promises would be an anchor for our souls. We're going to get to this passage in just a moment. In Hebrews chapter 6, the writer of Hebrews says, this is the purpose that we have this story that we would have this assurance for our souls, that we'd be able to walk forward with some type of anchor that's tethered to the truth. 
So today we're going to see that as kind of the bottom line. God's promises serve as an anchor for our souls. And so let's get into the context of this passage, starting in verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. So God's word first comes to Abraham and he says, after these things. So his word is coming in the context of story. Now I know I've skipped like everything from Genesis chapter 12 up to Genesis chapter 15, but I'm going to give you these four scenes of things that have just happened in the life of Abraham. And here's the theme of what's just happened. Abram has yielded things that belong to him in the hopes that maybe he'll be safe. Okay. First scene is Abram's wife. She's very pretty. Okay. Um, like me, he has to deal with other people noticing that his wife is very beautiful. He's afraid, and he goes into this land of Egypt because of famine. He gets into this land, and, and he knows that people are going to see that she's beautiful, and then he's afraid they're going to kill him. So he says, hey, why don't you be my sister, half-sister, half-lie? She goes in there, and, he, and basically the, the king takes her as his bride. God sends a plague. He protects him anyway, even though Abram's trying to work out how he's going to be protected. He protects him in some other way. That's scene number one, okay? Plagues in Egypt because Abram's wife is beautiful. Scene number two, Lot and Abram. Abram has set out with his nephew Lot, and they get to this country, this land, and there's lots of herds and cattle, and, and Lot's herdsmen are in conflict with Abraham's herdsmen. He has a conflict between his family members. Anybody familiar with that scene? Uh, why they shouldn't take the better land. And Abram says, okay, I'm going to settle this conflict. He says to his nephew, you can take the thing, whatever you want. And, Abr and Lot takes the better land, this, the lowlands that are fertile and rich. And Abram takes the less prosperous land. Scene number three. So both of those, Abram is yielding something that belongs to him in order to have safety and avoid conflict. Scene number three, okay, king of Sodom. He, Lot is taking this land that's close to Sodom, which is another story we're not going to cover this time through this passage, okay? But he's sitting there next to this land, and there's these other people who come and invade, take over Sodom, take Lot captive. And so his nephew's now been kidnapped. And Abram um, takes a group of about 318 men, trained men, okay? So he's got like a SEAL team that travels with him apparently. And he goes and rescues his nephew Lot. So he's realizing this is like a dog-eat-dog -dog world. And at the end of this, he conquers and they're like settling everything. Lot's out of captivity. You guys still with me? Scene number three, Lot's kidnapped. Abraham saves him. And at the end of the story, he gives this 10% to some priest named Melchizedek that we're not even going to dive into today. And then there's the king of Sodom. He's like, I tell you what, I'm going to make a deal with you. I take all the people, you take all the cash. And Abram says, no, I'm not going to take any of these possessions. I'm not going to take any of it. He yields in this moment. So scene four is he has all the spoils of war. And when he's offered to take them, Abraham says, no, I'm good. I've made a promise to the possessor of heaven and earth that I wouldn't take anything from anybody who might claim to have made me rich. So in all four of these moments, he says, no, I'll give up something that rightfully belongs to me. And lacking faith in certain moments, having faith potentially in other moments, he's saying, okay, just because you're the enemy of my enemy doesn't make you my friend. And at the end of the day, he's come through all of this and he's seeing this is not a safe world, okay? It's a dog-eat-dog -dog world. People are willing to kill over one another and possessions. And in this moment, God's word comes to him and says this. 
What does he say? He first gives him a command in the midst of each of these scenes. He's coming out of it. In this moment, he says this, do not be afraid. He commands. He sees something very real. If you've ever had someone suggest to you that you should not be anxious, you immediately start thinking, wait, what am I supposed to be anxious about? You know what I'm talking about? People that, that tell you all the reasons that you should not be anxious. Several years ago, I was going on a mission trip, and it was the first time I'd led teenagers on a mission trip, okay? And I was like, this is going to be great. It's going to be super fun. It's amazing. Uh, and then they began to explain the safety protocol for the country that we're going in, that they would have military-trained guards with, with uh, machine guns traveling with us. I'm like, wait, wait, why? Why do, you, why do you guys have that? What's the purpose of this, like, really, uh, this is going to be like looking suspicious to people, right? If we're traveling around with like machine guns all around us. And they're like, they, people have a history of kidnapping kids in this country. I'm like, oh. And immediately I begin to realize that, okay, there's a reason that we need to pray about this trip. Like we need to just pray over this. And the command that God is giving him to not be afraid is not only in the context of a dog-eat-dog world, but it's also coming with a promise. The next two things he says to him, there's a reason that you shouldn't be afraid because I'm going to be your shield and I'm going to be your provision. Uh, recently, I watched this, this uh, documentary called The Volcano, Rescue from Wakari. Uh, and it's about this like tour guide in New Zealand and they took like these tours and people would go to this active volcano to see it, see how close they could get to it. And, and they interview all these people because the volcano erupts while people are on the island. It's very sad. People die. And then people are coming back and they're interviewing them for this documentary. And there's, all of them are going like, I didn't think there was a reason to be afraid. They take tours here every single day. There's no reason to be afraid. But there was one lady who was like, I was afraid. Okay? Some of you probably have that spidey sense of like, I, if something's going to go wrong, I can anticipate what it is that's going to go wrong. God's word comes to Abraham in this moment and says, I don't want you to be afraid for two reasons. Not because there's not danger, but because I will be your shield. Which means I'm going to be your protector. I'm going to go before you. I'll protect you. A shield, you know, you only need a shield if you're going into battle, Right? People don't just walk around with shields. And then he also says, I'm, I'm going to give you a very great reward. I'm going to make provision for you. You know, it's interesting to me, before this moment in Abraham's life, you get this scene that Abraham was very capable man. Like, he's already grown very, very rich. Uh, He's already like able to protect himself. In fact, in the scene before this, he's got this group of 318 men that are trained men. I want to show it to you because I want to point it out that God is speaking this word to him, that he would be a shield and a reward to him. And Abraham had means, okay? He was not a man of insignificant means. Look at verse Genesis 14, 14. When Abraham, this is when he hears about, uh, about Lot being taken, kidnapped. He heard his kinsmen had been taken captive. He led forth his trained men born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. In other words, he had some folks, okay? Second thing I want you to see is he's not only powerful, but he's rich. In the chapter before this, in Genesis 13 too, it says, Now Abram was very rich in livestock and in gold. 
He's got lots of stuff. He has the worldly means of protection, and God is still speaking to him in this moment. I'm going to be your shield. I'm going to be your very great reward. Now, some of you may have it. Uh, it says, your reward shall be very great. It literally just says, and your very great reward. In other words, God is ultimately offering himself to Abraham. God gives him this promise. And even though Abram had the ability to seek his own security by his own means and seek his own provision by his own means, God is speaking into that very circumstance and saying, hey, it's a dog-eat-dog world. I know you've got riches. I know you have protection, but I am this for you. He gives him this promise, a word of protection, a word of provision. Fear not, Abram. It's going to be on the screen. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. You're going to be safe under my protection. Now, there's this question that I have as I read this passage. Like, would this be the first of many conflicts? You know, at this point, Abram's like wandering in the land of Canaan and there's other people around him. There's obviously other people in charge. And suddenly he has to go to war and all of a sudden he becomes a threat. It's like, you've never noticed Abram and all his herds before, but now they look at a little different, right? And he's saying, I'm going to be your shield. I'll be your reward. He's reassuring him. And ultimately, the promise was himself. It's a very similar uh, thing that the Lord says to Aaron when they're coming out of the land of Egypt. Much later in the story of Israel, he says this to Aaron, you shall have no inheritance in their land, neither shall you have any portion among you. Why? Because I am your portion and your inheritance among the people of Israel. Just real quick before we kind of move on, uh, how does this, or how could this possibly translate into our life? I mean, I can think of many, many different ways. But for so many people, these ideas of God being protector and provider, they feel like ideas, and they don't really hit the ground. Like, where, what does that mean, Lord? What does it mean? And, and I think that's a really important question that Abraham is about to ask. Because so many of us might would prefer and maybe we would prefer to keep our faith in kind of this headspace where we interact with God, but we, it doesn't ever reach the ground. We're like, what, what does that mean for what I'm doing and what's going to happen around me? And Abraham asks this question. It really reminds me of Martha. You guys remember when Jesus gets, shows up to raise Lazarus from the grave? And, Martha, and he says, I'm the resurrection of life. And Martha says, well, I know we're all going to be resurrected one day. Like, I get it. One day, our future hope is out there. Like, yes, Jesus, I believe that one day you're going to make everything okay. And Jesus is like, no, no, no. I want you to understand, like, I'm here to break into the here and now what's going to come in the future. And in the same way, Abraham is probably wondering, okay, but like, is this, gonna, is this great promise that you have for me, is this going to like, how's it going to unfold? So he asks him this question. Look at verse 2. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. And the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And then he goes on to ask him again. Behold, you've given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. In other words, 
so I get it. You're going to be my shield and my provision, and that's really good, and I know it should make me feel better about the here and now, but what are you going to do, God? Like, what are you going to, how's it going to happen? You've made these promises to me. He's already told him in chapter 13 that his offspring are going to be like the dust that's beneath his feet. So he's looking around, he's like, there's a lot of dust, but I have no air. Got a lot of prosperity, but not posterity. I don't have the answer to this question. And so I don't, I don't know about you, but there's only one person who knows everything. And so the right place, I don't know whoever introduced this idea that it's not right to ask God, like to bring questions to God. We shouldn't question God. He's the only person who has answers. Like we should bring the questions to the one who knows everything. Now he may not answer you and what he answers you might be different than what you expect, which is what happens for Abraham. God's promise to him, he's asking, and he does it in a certain way. He starts out with, oh, Lord God. It's a posture of humility. He's saying, you're sovereign over everything. What are you going to give me? I have no heir. It's in humility, and it's also asking very specifically, how's it going to unfold? He's honest with God, too. It's not only humble, but he's honest, saying, hey, the way that I see it playing out, you're not actually doing what you've said you'll do. This is the essence of prayer. This is what it means to pray with humility and and honesty saying, hey, things aren't what it seems like you would desire in the world. This world is broken and I'm noticing it and I hope that you'll change it. It's not just kind of like indifference towards, well, I guess I'll just have to give my inheritance to some other heir. Look, you can always figure out some way to bring about some compromise of God's purposes, which is exactly what happens with Hagar and Ishmael. There's some way that you could probably work something out, okay? You might could work something out that would resemble what God has promised. But in honesty, he comes to him and says, how are you going to do this, Lord? What's going to happen? It reminds me of this tension in Mark chapter 8. There's this beautiful story of this guy where he's blind and he's begging. And he says, Jesus, heal me. Please heal me. And Jesus spits in his eyes, super gross. And he's like, okay, how's it looking? And the guy responds like this. He looks up and he says, I see people, but they look like trees walking. And then Jesus lays his hand on him again and he opened his eyes and his sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. I think there's a lot of us that have received some degree of promise. And we're, if we're really humble and really honest, it feels like we're walking around going, I kind of see what you're doing here. Like it's, it's vague. I'm hopeful here, but it looks like trees walking around. I, I, don't, I don't know how it's going to unfold. And, and in humility and honesty, we bring those kinds of questions to God saying, Lord, I'm not going to pretend that I'm all the way content with what you've done to this point. I'm hungry for more. I'm desperate for more. I want to see your hand at work in the ways that you've promised. So how will God respond? (laughs) Oh, I love this. I love this picture. It's one of my favorite places in Scripture. It moves me. It's so visceral in his response. He takes him outside. First, look at verse 4. God confirms his promise like this. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him. Now, a lot of times when we ask God to like do something, he gives us more words. That's just true, okay? That's not all. He gave him experience too. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. I'm going to do it. 
And in verse 5, he brought him outside and said, look up towards heaven, number the stars. If you're able to number them, And he said to him, so shall your offspring be. First, God's word comes to him. And his word is accompanied by experience. Now, I think we can make an idol out of experience because we're discontent with the idea that God's words are sufficient. But we don't need to dismiss the experiential either. Because in this moment, God says, I want to take you outside. I want to show you something. And he's already pointed out the dust underneath his feet that he's cleaning off his feet every day. He says, your offspring are going to be like that. Now he takes him outside. And I want you to imagine if any of you have ever been like living outside of the city like me. I was raised in the country. And you could see the light pollution from the three cities that were closest to us. Like over there, oh, that must be Tupelo. That must be New Albany. That must be Pontotoc. Okay, that's where the cities are because you could see the light reflecting on the clouds. But when you live way out in the country where there's no light pollution, and guess what? There was none for him. It just expanded. And the more he looked at them, the more lights there were in the sky. And as he saw it, God said, this is what your offspring is going to be like. Can you imagine that experience? Anybody who's actually looked at the small, at the stars cannot maintain any sense of ego that you're like a big person. Okay? You immediately feel the gravity of creation. He accompanies his word with this experience that was visceral. Every single time from this moment forward, I guarantee you when Abraham looked up at the stars, there's a little bit of a gleam in his eye. He takes him out and says, look up. Takes him stargazing. He sees the heaven and something happens in Abraham's heart in this moment. Something transformative in this moment happens. And it's one of the most important moments in all of Scripture. If you want to be biblically literate, you need to know this next verse. It's quoted more than anything else in the Old Testament. It just continues to go back to this moment. In Romans, in Galatians, in Hebrews, in James. They're all pointing back to this moment. What does it mean? Look at verse 6. He believed the Lord. And the Lord counted it to him as righteousness. Now, I want to point out that this is after he's already set out in faith. James points that out. He's like, look, he's counted as righteous because he's already walking. He's already out in the desert somewhere. That's why it's righteous. Then in Romans, he's like, well, he later gets circumcised. You can't point to the circumcision and say that's the reason he counted as righteous. It's not some... Thing that he added on to it, it's the expression of his faith and obedience. And in that expression of obedience of faith, God says, this man is right before me. And here's what I want you to know. Anything that you might do as an expression of your faith is not what makes you righteous. It's what you put your faith in that makes you righteous. He believed that God was able. He believed that, and because of that, he acted in response to that belief, and something happened before him and God, and God counted it to him as righteous. And if you're putting any of your faith and anything else, if you were to say, how can I be right before God? How can I be reconciled to God? If you look and ask that question of yourself, and there's any other answer other than what God has done for you, then it's hopeless. It's faith in what he's done for us and what he will do for us. 
Hebrews 11.6 says this, without faith, guess what? It's impossible to please Him for whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. Two parts of this faith. It's impossible to please God without it. If you're attempting to be pleasing to God in any other way other than by faith, if you're counting on being good enough for long enough or avoiding the bad things right enough in your life, there is no other hope for us other than this, that we would cling to this. So what pleases God? It pleases us when we believe Him, believe that He exists, and that He responds when we believe that. And sometimes He responds with more words, okay? So Abraham believes, and then God gives him more words. Now we're going to go through that cycle again. God's word, his questions, God's assurance, and Abram's faith. Let's look at it again. God's word comes again to Abraham in verse 7. He said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of, from earth to the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. First, I want to point out to you that he starts by saying, I've already done some things in you, Abram. I've already brought you out from where you were. God confirms his identity and his already accomplished work. You're not where you were and you're not where you will be. The land is eventually going to be yours. And he, he responds once again with questions. What's he say? How am I going to know, Lord? Look at verse 8. But he says, oh, Lord, how am I going to know that I shall possess it? Possess it? Anybody relate to this? Like, but how am I supposed to know for sure? I'd really like to know something, God. Can you just let me know for sure? Can I see it more clearly? And then God answers his questions. And I'm going to tell you, it, it's, it's probably not what Abraham was hoping to hear, okay? He gives him knowledge of something that Abraham was like, I would have been good without that, okay? Would have liked to not known that. God responds to his questions in this way. First, he says, go get a heifer, a goat, a ram, turtle doves, and a young pigeon. And now, if, if you're like, okay, what is this? <laughs> if you've ever had a DocuSign sent to your email, okay? If you've ever had a contract that you had to sign for a lease, if anybody's ever slid a piece of paper over to you and said, you're going to need to sign here in order to get the thing that we're... You, you, this is what he's doing, okay? And Abraham would have understood that this is a contract. This is a covenant. This is something very serious, very grave. And even though we're not familiar with walking through dead animals in order to make an agreement, we might shake on it. Abraham probably would have been familiar that, hey, we're about to make some kind of agreement here. He's making up a contract and he's about to slide it across to me. And it's different than a contract. This is a covenant. It's eternal. It's a grave promise. There's this example of this kind of covenant a little bit later in Jeremiah 34. And I don't want to go too far down this rabbit hole, but I want you to understand what it looked like, okay? God is talking to his people when they've disobeyed him, and he describes how that he's going to bring back the covenant that they had walked through some pieces like this back to their attention. This is what it says in Jeremiah 34, verse 11. The man and the men, this is God talking to the people who've disobeyed. The men who transgressed my covenant and did not keep the terms of the covenant that they made before me, I will make them like the calf that they cut into and passed between its parts. The officials of Judah, the officials of Jerusalem, the eunuchs, the priests, and all the people of the land who passed between the parts of the calf. 
Now, in, a, in this moment in Jeremiah, he's calling to memory the fact that a group of people had made a covenant with them. And the promise, when you would walk through these parts, you're saying, hey, you can do this to me if I don't keep my end of the promise. You can cut me open, lay me open. So he begins to lay out this covenant and then he tells him something that I guarantee you he would rather have not have known. So he says, I'd like to know how, you, how am I going to know? And God says, you're going to know at least this. You're going to at least know this. The Lord said to Abram, it's going to be on the screen, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I'll bring judgment on the nation that will serve and after, afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. That seems like good news, right? And they shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. This is just a side note. Um, sometimes when we want to know the things that God knows, if he were to show them to us, we might go, I'm good not knowing that. He's saying to him, your kids and grandkids and great-grandkids are going to be slaves for 400 years. And then something holy and terrible happens. Holy and terrible and wonderful and awesome. God shows up in a real way. Look at verse 12. The sun was going down and a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Something very holy is about to happen. Now we uh, have almost ruined the word all because we say everything is awesome. We've almost lost our sense of reverence, of awe, of holy fear. I'm not talking about fear like the world would cause us to run away. It's a holy reverence that we would draw near in this moment, that we would lean in. It would say, hey, the great weight of, about, of what's about to happen pales in comparison to the weight that I hold. I remember several years ago, I was on sabbatical um, with my family, and we were staying in this condo that... that uh, met up with this cove in a river in Florida, and there was like hundreds of manatees that would go. And manatees are just fun creatures. You just go out there, and you know they're eating lettuce and things. The sea cow. And so we would every day like go get in a kayak and go kayak around with these sea cows. It was amazing until one of them decided to like knock me over. And I'm like in the water with this thing, and it's the size of like two couches, Okay. And if you want to see me panicking, I, get it. I was in a panic. And from that moment on, I, I, I still loved hanging out with the manatees. I just think they're great. Every time I was in their element and on that little bitty kayak, there was a sense that I was drawing near something that was in control and I was not in control. So when we draw near to God in reverence like this and pay attention that when Abram, he wasn't like silly with, oh. He wasn't singing a song in this moment about the promises of God. 
there was a holy dread that fell over him in this place. May we, by God's grace, find some of that. The way that this passage describes Abraham's humility and questioning, but also God's response and the nearness of God's holiness, we just need to have a, a keen and new awareness that when God draws near to us, that he is to be revered. In that moment, God tells him what he didn't want to know. The sun goes down. It's dark. How's he going to know? How's he going to know if God really loves him? How's he going to know if he's really going to get the land? The sun goes down. It's dark. And look at verse 17. A smoking firepot and flaming torch passed between these pieces. Abraham did not pass between these pieces. God takes this covenant on himself saying, let it be done to me if the things I've promised to you do not come true. He's both given him his word and he gives him a, an experience that I'm sure Abram will never forget. Look at verse 18. That day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying, to your offspring, I'll give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. God made a covenant that day and confirmed the covenant he'd already made. He said he's going to do this. Now he's confirming it, saying, I'm going to make it so. Normally, the one who had less authority would pass through the parts. Or if they were peers, both would pass through the parts. But in this circumstance, God, with all authority over creation, Abram had already said this in, verse, in chapter 14. He says, he possesses the heavens and the earth. He knows this. And the one who held all authority passes before him, saying, I will take this on myself. Now, in this passage, we don't have Abraham's response. But we find out later in Romans chapter 4 that his response was believing and growing in faith. And we're going to look at it in just a moment. So God's promise is that, that he rewards those who seek him. And so I want, to, I want to close with this. How might we receive this word? How could we receive this truth? Hebrews chapter 6 says this. He's describing why God made this oath with Abraham. So read the whole chapter, but he, he's kind of concluding in verses 18, 19, and 20. And I'm going to read in, in verse 18. He says this. Why did he do this? Why did he pass through these parts? It was so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have a strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. The reason that we look at this story, the reason that it's important to us, is so that we would have this strong encouragement that it would be set before us as a hope for those who fled to him for refuge. I love the hymn, How firm a foundation you saints of the Lord has made for your faith in his excellent word. What more can he say than he's already said to you who to Jesus have fled? For everyone who has fled to Jesus, this is our hope. We fled to him as a refuge. And that refuge, he gives us this picture. It's a sure and steadfast anchor for the soul. 
This is what that means. It's not just an encouragement to us. This is what tethers us in this world. There's wind, there's waves, things change. Things do not look like how God promised that they would look. But our anchor in this world is that we have a hope that's fixed on a person who's already accomplished on our behalf what we could not accomplish for ourselves. God's promise here serves as a steadfast anchor for our souls. So this is the conclusion. Look, God's promises to us, they're not just to be like in our heads or in our hearts. They have real impact on the day to day. And if they don't, be like Abraham and say, what gives? How's it going to come to pass? What are you going to give me? How will I see it? And God may just give you his word again. But he also, a lot of times, accompanies his word with confirmation and assurance and the experience of the saints coming around you and saying, this is true. It is true. And pleading with your own heart to believe. God's offering to us a line here, a tether to be anchored to his truth. Because listen, everything else is changing. So what questions do you bring today? Listen, if, if you're currently distracted or overwhelmed or uninterested in this, God is offering to you a line to be anchored to him. We bring his questions to him and by faith, we walk forward with him. Maybe some of you are wondering, is it enough for me? Is Christ sufficient? Will he provide? Will he protect? Those are the questions he invites you to bring to him in prayer. It's not just an idea that he's a protector and provider. He's offering that ultimately in salvation through Jesus Christ. There would be a way that we might receive this word and be like Abraham in Genesis 15, 6. It says this, And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. There's no other way to be righteous but by faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. God rewards those. Won't he do it? I want to go to Romans chapter 4 because he explains this, how we might be included in this oath. That's how we might respond in Hebrews 6. But how might we respond today in faith? He's going to describe in Romans 4 how Abraham actually responded when this oath was made. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. In other words, I do not have the means to procreate the promise. God has to do it. I'm without the means. We just sang this before. I have no merit to woo or delight you. I have no powers to employ. But yet in your mercy, how pleasing you find me. He's as good as dead. And in that moment, he hopes against hope. Look at what the next verse says. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith and he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone. Who was it written for then? Who, Paul, was this written for? It was for our sake also that that was written. That we might receive it today. 
wasn't just for Abraham. This promise wasn't just for him. It was for us. So that, look at the next verse, it will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. It's not just for Abraham, guys. This is good news in Rome in Genesis 15, 6, that we might see Abraham believed and he counted to him as righteous. We too might believe and it's counted to us as God's righteousness over him. This is the promise that I cling to for my past. It's also the promise that I cling to for my future. In 1 John chapter 3, it says this, Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. You, know, you can't even imagine. We know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. It's breaking through in the here and now. I see his resemblance on so many of you. But this is our full assurance. This is our hope. One day, we're going to look just like Jesus because we're going to see him as he is. And we're clinging that today. We're clinging today. Not only has he dealt with our past, but he's assured us of our future. Lord, that gives me hope. Incredible hope. Not just for our justification that we walk by faith, but for our sanctification. He will do it. Let's pray to that end. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you for this word. I love this passage. (laughs) I love this truth. As we once again come to the table, Lord, I pray that that those that um, just are full of more questions than they have answers today, that they would bring their questions to you. Humbly, honestly, asking, Lord, please come through. Please come through. Lord, I ask that in my own life, that you'd show me little signs, the evidence of your word confirmed. Bring us out for the experiential too, that we would be confirmed over and over and over again. That you're not far from us, but you're near. Lord, I pray that we'd experience that even in this gathering today. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your word. Pray, Lord, that you would speak even as we sing today in these songs, that it would be a confirmation that we'd be able to receive your word and walk out of this place in faith, just renewed and restored, trusting in you, bringing about your kingdom. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.